Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I'm your host, along with our co-host and my dear old dad, Ronnie Nathan. Hey, Pops. Hey, how you doing? Good, good. Hey, Dad, have you uh, liked us on Facebook? Um, hundreds of times. Okay. <laughs> I'm assuming you've subscribed on Apple or or wherever you get your podcasts? I think so. Um, I, I'm, you know, I'm still living in the 1950s, so this technology okay. is uh, <laughs> okay. a little beyond me. But um, all right, I'm bringing it up as a way to uh, ask our listeners to do the same. If my if my old man, very very old ancient Jewish father, can can do such a thing, so can you. <laughs> uh, well, without further ado, I'd like to introduce our guest today, Daniel Darling. Hi, Dan. How you doing? I'm good. Uh, how are y'all doing? We're doing great. We're doing great. By way of intro, Pastor Daniel Darling is the Senior Vice President at NRB, the National Religious Broadcasters, and is also a best-selling author of several books, including Away With Words, which was released last summer, as well as the co-editor of The Church and the Racial Divide, a study for small groups on racial reconciliation, and many other books. He's also a regular contributor to a wide variety of publications such as In Touch Magazine and Christianity Today. He's had op-eds in USA Today, National Review, Washington Times, and the Washington Post. Has appeared on CNN, Fox, and MSNBC. You really cover like Washington Times and the Post, <laughs> MSNBC, and Fox News. Like you really got your bases covered. So I give you props. I'm trying. Yeah. And uh, also, he, um, Daniel has a popular podcast called The Way Home where he interviews Christian leaders, politicians, and journalists. Really jealous, by the way, of you being able to interview David French, one of my absolute favorite voices of the day. Yeah. I've, I've spent some time with David. He's a great guy. Oh, man. Yeah. He sounds like it. He sounds like the real deal. Yes. Real, real guy. Doesn't think he's a thing, you know? I like that. Yeah. Well, th- th- I really appreciate you joining us. How are you, your family, your 147 kids? or How many kids do you have? We have four, but it seems like 147 <laughs> at times, especially because we've got like, I've got one teen and two preteens. And then my, my nine-year-old is telling me that dad technically being nine is preteen. Oh. So, you know, yeah, it's a full house. <laughs> that must be averaging up. <laughs> yes, but it's fun. It's been That's awesome. strange times, but it's been fun. Well, just a little bit of background. Did you, I saw you went to Dayspring Bible College. Did you grow up in the Midwest? I did. I grew up in the Chicago area. Uh, I'm, I've been in Nashville since 2013, but I'm a Chicagoan. Chicago suburbs, you know. Okay. Okay. Was it ERLC, the the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission that brought you to Nashville? Yes, it was. Yeah. I mean, I had, uh, when Dr. Moore asked me to join his team in 2013, uh, we, we moved to Nashville. It was a fun, it was it, it was a, it was fun to do though, because my wife's from Texas and I'm from Chicago. So she felt like she was living in exile in the, in the North with the Yankees. So the fact that we got to go to Nashville, it kind of split the difference, if you will, you know, that's awesome. And I was curious if that intersection of ministry and communications has always been something you've wanted to pursue from when you were a kid. Yeah, as a lot of my a lot of our listeners know that apologetics is uh, a huge avocation of mine. So I was curious about that. Yeah, it kind of has been. You know, it's interesting. Um, I've always had a calling to for words. You know, I've loved words. You know, since I was a kid, I would read everything I could read. You know, we got three newspapers every day. I read, you know, the Hardy Boys or whatever classic books. I'd read uh, biographies you know, political magazines. I was always reading something. Um, and then, you know, I had a teacher in junior high who said, 
you know, back then they called it junior high. Now it's called middle school, I think. But, um, you know, I turned in some assignments, writing assignments. She said, you know, I think you actually have a talent at this. You should do this. And, you know, when you're in middle school and you're kind of awkward and your body's doing weird things and you're not the cool kid, when you have a teacher tell you that you have a talent, you kind of take it and run with it, right? So I've always had that um, that desire and writing is whatever whatever I'm doing, I'm always doing some writing either at my position or, you know, on the side, you know, and so I've been a pastor and you're writing sermon manuscripts and I've worked in communications for a couple organizations. And of course I'm always writing books and articles. So it's just always been a part of me. And then on the ministry side, I have always felt a call to ministry. Uh, always since I was a child felt that God wanted me to be in ministry in some way, walking forward at camp and just always felt that. And I love thing is I love the church. I love God's people. I love Sundays. As an Orthodox Jew, can I ask you what that means? The, the church. I know what the church means to a Catholic. I don't know what it means to a Protestant. Well, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think, you know, as, as Christians, you know, we believe that the church is the, both the global church, you know, Christians who put their faith and trust in Christ as Lord and Savior, they believe he has risen from the dead and is uh, alive at the right hand of the Father, that Christ is the Son of God. It's both the, the global church and then the local church, you know, the a local body of believers. I've always been part of a local assembly, local congregation. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it does. So in other words, the term the church is kind of like an amorphous. It, it is. It, it's it's not a concrete concept. It's um, it's a rather abstract one. It can be. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, like we use it. It's insidery talk that Christians use. But when we say the church, we th- we think of the global, as we say, the global body of Christ, the global uh, Christians, people who put profess faith in in Christ. And we, we're also referring to those alive and those who have passed on. We, you know, the Hebrews talks about Hebrews 11 talks about the great cloud of witnesses, you know, that's gone before. So that's kind of what we mean. That makes sense. Okay. Well, let's, um, there's a couple of topics I wanted to explore with you. I appreciate the, uh, the intro. You start chapter six of your most recent book away with words with a really apt quote from Micah. He has told you, mortal one, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? Actually, I think you use a different translation, but um, I was looking up Micah 6, 8. He has told you, mortal one, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. What What is it about that principle that you found particularly relevant to what's happening in our churches and, and um, around the country? I mean, I, I think that is a seminal verse for a, for a follower of Jesus, for a, for a Christian, that it kind of lays out the duty of those who, who follow God that, um, you know, it kind of sums everything the prophet has been saying, everything into kind of encapsulate, like this is what our, is to do justice, to love mercy and walk humbly. And I think all of those things fit together, right? Um, justice, meaning we should really care about the vulnerable. We should care about the vulnerable um, who suffer injustice, you know, and, and for me, I, you know, whether it's a, the unborn who are marked for death or it's elderly who are uncared for, or if it's the disproportionate way in which, you know, racial, minorities sometimes are treated or some of the systems that disadvantage them, but we should care about justice, you know, in any way we can. Uh, Justice also means righteousness. It means like the right thing. So it's not just issues and act activism, but it's, it's, you know, matching up with the the righteousness of God. Uh, Also, we should love mercy, you know, and we're not in a very merciful society. (laughs) People like justice or their version of it. They want to enact justice. They want, they want to see the other guys that they disagree with squash and they want to see their side win. That's kind of how we see justice a lot of times, but we should love mercy. Mercy means not getting what 
you deserve. You know, as a person who believes the Bible, Bible kind of says that every person has in some way offended God and has violated God's holiness. We don't deserve mercy and yet God gives us mercy that he doesn't give us what we deserve. And then I think the walking humbly part is interesting because a lot of people who use that verse Micah, it is what rightly motivates them to go into the world and make a difference. Thank I'm thankful for that, but there's a walk humbly part and not to get on a soapbox, but part of a lot of what this book is about is that there's a way that we kind of project uh ourselves, particularly on social media and in ways that we interact publicly, that we want people to know that we're on the right side. We want, we do activism, but we want everyone to know, or we confuse being mad at the right people on Twitter with activism. And we need to stand up for the vulnerable. We need to do active activism, be involved in issues, but do it humbly. In other words, we're not doing it so that we can elevate ourselves. We're doing it so that we can genuinely honor God and also lift up uh, uh, those, lift up others. I've noticed that in a lot of your uh, writing and on your podcast and other places I've heard you interviewed, uh, you do a really good job of emphasizing parts of the seminal verses or passages that sometimes we forget given our Mm. cultural proclivities, like you say, a little bit heavy on the justice. Uh, a little bit light on humbly walking or one of my favorite verses. And as a, a fan of apologetics is the first Peter three fifteen, um, the gentleness and respect part. I, I do notice that you lead in or lean in um, to that, those ingredients in passages like that. I also appreciate your more 360 um, presentation or, or uh, the way that you discuss your view of the value of life the dignity of life um, because it's inclusive of those who've been overlooked or, um, you know, immigrants, uh, widows and Mm -hmm. orphans, what have you. One way, uh, one obviously very, very contentious issue uh, is the issue of abortion. I wonder being a a student of, of words and rhetoric, I, I wonder how aggressively uh, we in the church or those who do think that life starts at conception is, is aggressive language, like the use of baby killers, you know, is that uh, having a net negative effect, you think? Yeah. I mean, I, I think any kind in any of our activism, we need to be wise about the way that we employ language. Um, and, you know, most pro-life activists that I know are, really have deep compassion for the women in crisis and really not only have devoted their lives to making sure, you know, to saving babies, but to saving the women who carry those babies. In fact, most of the pro-life activists I know are women themselves, some of whom are post-abortive, some of whom just have a deep passion for this issue. But as, as it says in first Peter three fifteen, you know, have an answer for every person for the hope that lies within you. So speak to the questions of the age, speak to the issues that are, um, people are grappling with, um, but do it with gentleness and kindness. And we have this idea that you can't have courage and civility, that courage and civility can't coexist, that you either have to pick a side that um, some people think if you stand up very strongly against evil, that you're being mean. And, and some people think if you, as long as you're on the right side, that it doesn't matter how you say it. And the truth is, the loudest person in the room is not the most courageous, right? The way to be brave is not always just to type with all caps. So I think we have to balance those things. And if we're confident of our positions and we know and they're grounded in truth, we don't have to resort to rhetoric that inflames, you know, that we can make arguments that try to persuade others. As an observant Jew, um, I have similar, uh, point of view in terms of abortion. Um, it's based on the sanctity of life. Um, but what I've observed is that most of the people I know who are the loudest people about the abortion issue don't seem to um, 
value the sanctity of life when it comes to universal health care, for example, or how you treat immigrants, uh, what happens at the border. Somehow life sanctity ends for them at birth. I find that very troubling. Yeah, I mean, I look, I think there's there's a criticism to be made there about um, inconsistencies in people who do advocacy work on this stuff or who have deeply held positions. I mean, however, I, I think what one of the one of the things I would say about that, I would say a couple of things. I would say one, yes, there are inconsistencies with many pro-life people in terms of, you know, seeing uh, having a pro-life perspective across life, pro-life, whole life from natural conception, from conception to natural death. Uh, I wrote a book about that called The Dignity Revolution, really urging Christians to to view every issue through the lens of human dignity. So that, I mean, it's, I'm not going to say that your criticism isn't fair. I think, I think there's a fair criticism. However, I, I do think some of that criticism is a, is a bit unfair in the sense that if you look at where conservative Christians uh, who are pro-life, if you look at their lives, for the most part, they are um, contributing in a lot of areas. For instance, the highest rates of charitable giving are typically among conservative pro-life folks. If you just look at the... I, I have to stop you there. Uh, if you exclude contributions to their church and compare charitable giving to secular groups, then the differences disappear. I give an enormous amount of money to my synagogues. Mm -hmm. um, but I probably on the spectrum, if you know, giving money to other charitable causes, I probably give about as much as the average person in my income bracket does. Yeah, I mean, that's a fair, that's a fair thing. I, well, I guess what I was, was continuing to say is, a lot of the people who are convictionally pro-life and they think they see the unborn child as a human being made in the image of God worth who deserves life and dignity and protection under law are also the same people who are sponsoring children, who are adopting, who are giving to charity. Now, look, there's inconsistencies and I'm not going to refute that. I think people do have inconsistencies, but I think you could find inconsistencies across the spectrum. Oh, sure. I could... Um, I, I could make the same argument, for instance, to, to folks who care very deeply about justice, as I do, are very involved in social justice issues, and they'll speak up, as I'm glad they do, on some of these issues like child poverty and um, immigration, but they're very silent on the unborn. They don't see the unborn as a justice issue. And I think part of the reason we kind of get segmented into these tribes is because those who would be natural allies on one issue might be opponents on the other issue. And so people are very cautious. And I, I agree that we need to be consistent. There are voices that are calling for this across the spectrum, but there need to be more, uh, I would say. And, um, you know, sometimes it's an issue of what are the, what's the best approach. So good people disagree. So for instance, you talk about healthcare. I agree with you that everyone should have access to healthcare. You know, I think it's a human dignity issue that nobody should get sick or suffer because they don't have access to health care. But what is the best delivery system and the best mechanism? And I do think good people can disagree on, you know, what, what's the best way? Some people say we need, you know, more of a more government involvement. Some people think we need less. It's more effective. I'm, I actually don't have an opinion just because I, I don't know enough about the delivery mechanisms, but I do agree that everyone should have access to healthcare, but that's a fair criticism. I mean, I think we should apply that human dignity perspective across the spectrum, whether you're talking about unborn life or you're talking about the elderly, where you're talking about uh, immigrants, um, the refugees, which is kind of the reason I wrote my book, the dignity revolution, but that's, that's fair. Yeah. I, I think that's fair too. It's, it's as if every single issue that comes to the front pages of USA today is an either or uh, and that if if we're not on the right side or correct side, that we're mortal enemies and we're enemies on all front as as opposed to, you know, I we just published um, 
an interview with our state senator, Scott Wilk here, who's a Republican. Being a Republican in California state legislature, it's not mercy. It's not easy. But you know what? He's really helped to be an effective, loyal opposition to have a voice mm-hmm. as a, you know, as part of the minority party. And I think he's had a net positive effect, not just for Republicans, but for Democrats as well, because there mm-hmm. are plenty of Democrats who aren't, um, you know, who aren't all 100 um, percent approved by uh, whatever the most left leaning uh, contingency. Yeah, that's in, exactly in that right. Is. I think we need more yeah. of that. One thing I will say, too, and, and another answer to that question is. I think we should have sympathy and stand with the vulnerable across a range of issues from, from the unborn all the way to, to the elderly and to, you know, racial issues and immigration issues and healthcare, as you see, but there's also different specialties and callings, right? So some people are called into a very narrow focus on, for instance, um, relief and development. And that's the way they operate their pro-life human dignity perspective. Other people are working on, elderly issues, other people work in healthcare, other people are called to, to talk about the pro-life issue. So I think we need to call people to a holistic perspective. One of the things we shouldn't do is kind of play the zero sum game where when this issue of human dignity comes up, instead of saying, yes, that's awful, we need to do something, we kind of bring up another one as as, as if to kind of play one against the other, right? So if if the issue of abortion comes up, I don't think it's helpful to say, yeah, but what about these other people suffering? Or if the issue of gun violence comes up, I don't think it's important to say, yeah, but what about abortion? Like, I think, I think sometimes we use that holistic perspective as a kind of fig leaf in order to get out of our moral obligations with what's in front of us. Just one little reaction. Um, my experience has been uh, when I'm in a conversation with friends, um, about an issue like healthcare or uh, racial justice or police violence. Um, you know, I say, well, to me, that's a sanctity of life issue. Um, I'm not saying we don't need secure borders. I'm not saying we have to have Medicare for all. Uh, but they're sanctity of life issues. And these people need to be treated as if their lives are just as sacred as ours. Um, And in most cases, there's a tremendous pushback because what they're hearing is uh, I'm against abortion and now you're trying to convince me of your political views because I'm against abortion. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I mean, yeah. And I think so too often we tie things in to each other, right? So, but I mean, sanctity of life should be the the, the umbrella. That yeah, that should. The hard thing is it if if you're like me and you care about sanctity of life across different vulnerable people groups, as you're mentioning, as I, I believe you are. I am. There's really no one place to locate yourself because, you know, if you care about the unborn, you're not going to really be welcome in the Democratic Party. Sure you are. Well, sure you I are. mean, I'm, 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 you know, Dad, I don't. I'm a Democrat. There, well, there, there have been instances. Well, yeah. If you if you care about the unborn, you're not going to be is welcome in the Democratic Party. You're not going to be able to pass laws restricting that practice in there. But on the other hand, if you care deeply, I think about immigration issues, about some of the racial justice issues. I think it's going to be harder to find purchase in the Republican Party. So I think. You know, people have to make decisions on what they're going to do with their vote, which I think is different than what do I do activism wise? How do I use my voice? So we need more people who say, okay, well, because I prioritize this issue, this is the party that I locate myself in. However, I'm going to speak out against this thing, which is going to make me a little bit of a pariah within this movement. But you know what I'm saying? So I think we need more courage like that, but it's hard to do. And, you know, everyone's got different callings in terms of where they are on the political spectrum or what kind of involvement, whether they're doing local work in front of us on these issues, whether they're called to do public service and take positions, you know, it, 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 it gets a little bit complicated sometimes. 
Yeah. I, I, gosh, I, I don't envy some politicians in Congress right now. Um, sometimes it's a pick your battles and you know, you're going to get, <laughs> get pretty roughed up no matter which position you take. So I, I don't envy that, but I, I want to take a second to dig on a little bit of a deeper level in your observation, whether it's uh, in ministry work at your local church um, or more, you know, in your, in your professional role, what, what do you, what do you think are some of the fundamental existential questions people are struggling with? What is it that we're seeking both within America, the, the American evangelical movement or for those who are secular? You know, it's interesting. I think um, both groups are sometimes asking the same question, right? Where um, the questions I think people are asking today are similar to the questions people have asked in every age, but you just might be asking them in different ways. And they always boil down to who am I? What is my identity? Uh, what is my purpose in life? What is going on in the world? Like, why is the world so messed up? Um, and where are we going? You know, and again, I'm showing my biases, but I do think the Christian gospel kind of gives us that answer that it says that the world was once good. It's created by a loving God and something happened that kind of corrupted the world. And I, and I don't think anybody disagrees that the world is messed up. Uh, corruption and brokenness is marbled all the way through, th through it. And I don't think anybody questions the idea that even the best of us have dark parts of our lives that we wish to hide, that we all, are messed up in some way. And the Bible says that. It also says that um, God in Jesus has come to rescue us body and soul and to rescue the world. And it also says that we're going somewhere, that God is in the business of renewing and remaking the world. And so I think, not to oversimplify things, but I do think those are the questions people are asking. I think the social media age and the information digital age is kind of provoking that in a more intense way so that um, you know, who am I? What is, like, what is the self, right? Because we can kind of project a version of ourselves online. Uh, there's pressure to kind of conform to this tribe or that tribe or to be identified in certain ways. Who am I? I think one of the biggest issues we're dealing with is there's just pro a profound uh, deficit of trust across society. Every major institution in public life has disappointed us in profound ways in the last several years. If you think about it, the, the government, our leaders, uh, business, the church, religious institutions, uh, sports. I mean, like, you can't really find the media. You can't really find an institution in public life that hasn't disappointed us. And so I think part of the thing we're, we're grappling with is people don't know who to trust, where to turn. Uh, there's deep cynicism. I think this, this also f fuels these wild and dangerous conspiracy theories because people, you know, when there's a deficit of trust, there's, there's going to be a, a rise in, rumor and conspiracy theories, you know, in terms of belief in those. So I think those are the things that people are really grappling with, but I'm curious what, what you guys think. I mean, maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. I agree with you almost completely. <laughs> uh, I have a slightly different take. I think institutions have always fallen short. I think corruption has always been a constant in human existence. I think the difference that I've observed in my 74 years walking the planet is that we're losing our immediate um, uh, uh, community. We're losing community. Um, I grew up in an extended family in the same house with cousins and uncles and aunts and a grandparent and our extended family extended throughout the New York metropolitan area, but we, we were family. And people don't have that anymore, for the most part. 
I had a neighborhood that I identified with where if my neighbor's mother yelled at me, I got in trouble with my parents. Um, and that was a good thing. I think what social media does is disconnect us and amplify our alienation from local community. And that's what really sustains us as people and nurtures us as people, our immediate network and support system that we trust. Yeah, yeah, I've, I have been finding, and it's been uh, underscored a great deal over the last few weeks, that a lot of conversation online, I might share one friend in common with someone on Facebook, for example, and I'll respond to that individual. And then if it's objectionable to any one of her other thousand friends on Facebook, I might find myself as the, uh, the rabbit in the dog pile on the rabbit thing, <laughs> you know, but there is no relationship there to be a sinew. Uh, uh, you know, between me and the person that I'm have, trying to have a conversation with, which is why it often turns into rhetorical combat. So it, it, it is flawed. I, I try to avoid those conversations. I do think you're hitting on something, Ronald, that uh, you're exactly right. Ooh, <laughs> say that you know, again to Corey, because my son has never said that to me. Yeah, <laughs> frame it, right? Um, and I think this was happening before the pandemic, but the pandemic completely exacerbated this, that and one of the silver linings of COVID, if there is one, is that we're understanding this. But the way in which human beings are wired and built for community and how that shapes and forms us in healthy ways and, and not just, you know, as a, as a pastor, yes, the weekly gathering every week uh, for church or in, in just in religious communities shapes us in profound ways. You probably see this in your synagogue that absolutely the weekly gatherings does something, but not just those gatherings that we're missing. And I think missing those has had a profound effect on our society. I think explains a lot of the, a lot of this, the tension we're facing and seeing. Um, but think of all the little gatherings that have been canceled this year, the lions club meetings and the parent teacher fellowships and the, the theater productions at every little high school and those parties that you didn't really want to go to, but your wife makes you go to and, <laughs> and this meeting or that meeting. And some of that stuff's online, but there's the, the social connection of gathering with people and being with people. And, you know, they even say brain scientists study this and say that our brains actually develop better in community that they, they were made to operate in the context of community. And so I think that is really, I think, I, I don't think it explains everything that is happening in terms of what happened at the Capitol. Cause I think that was just a horrendous attack on our government. And I don't think it, I don't think it explains everything that happened in the summer with, with riots. And, and I don't think it's everything that is happening with the lack of unity and civility, but I think it has a, has a, it's a factor that when you, when people are shut up in their homes, when they're not doing their regular gatherings, you know, there's something about, I'm, I'm very passionate about this as you could tell, sorry, but there's something about being with other people that rubs, that sands off the rough edges of our lives, of our character, right? Can I concretize that for a second? Yes, please. Um, I worship at a, at Chabad, which is an ultra-Orthodox mm -hmm. religious community. Um, some of my best friends disagree with me passionately about day-to-day -day politics, whether mm -hmm. it's Trump or healthcare, whatever it is. Well, part of our worship at the end is having something called the Kiddush. We eat together. Um, and that's when we talk about politics and social issues and whatever. But because we worship together every single week and break bread together every single week, everyone, without having to be told, moderates the way they deliver their message. And they always deliver it with love and care because we care about these people. We're going to see them next week. And we develop affection for one another. And we're friends. And so we don't demonize each other because we disagree with each other. We try to understand 
what each other is saying. And, and, and the religious aspect of it um, is kind of the catalyst that makes that magic happen. I agree with that. Um, and there's, there's a couple of really good books that I think explain, and this has been happening before the pandemic. And a lot of sociologists have, have pinpointed the the loss of our, of community and community ties, you know, Robert Putnam, who I think is actually a, a liberal sociologist has rightly, you know, his book bowling alone, where he talks about the, the lack, the, the fraying of our communal bonds where people are doing things more solo and more alone. Um, Tim Carney has written a great book called Alienated America, where he talks about like the, the he looks at the data and the just these communities where the the social ties have been frayed, and, and they all wrote this before the pandemic, and I think this exacerbated it that we need these social ties, and if you have the social ties, like we probably all have, where we have friends, we have family, we have you know if things go bad, we have people we can lean on. A lot of folks don't have that, and I think it's it's fraying, and in it. You know, as you said, there. As a Christian, the Scripture is very clear about the importance uh, of of our bodies. That we are not just disembodied spirits, right? Uh, or as one philosopher says, we're not just brains on sticks. You know, like we 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 are embodied people, and we thrive. We need embodied relationships. We need to be around each other. We self moderate when we're with people who disagree with us, right? You're in a room at a restaurant or hanging out with folks and you got a Republic, you got a Democrat, you got a Jewish person, you got a, a Southern Baptist and they're all talking. You, you passionately disagree, but looking that person in the eyes and sharing a Coke with them or whatever, it, it rubs off the rough edges of your own thinking. It gives you empathy towards someone else. And I, and I think, and I love them. Right. Like whereas Facebook and these technologies and, and social media, which I think have done enormous good, by the way, you don't get that, you know, instead you're just crushing an avatar online. It's a video game. Like you don't see the humanity of the person you're disagreeing with. Yeah. David Brooks last couple books have been about that. And uh, mm. many of his columns over the last few years has been about that. Um, uh, on a recent episode of your podcast, The Way Home, you said public heresy should be met with a public response. I'm curious, are there certain public heresies you see within the conservative Christian movement that need to be reckoned with publicly? Yeah, I mean, that's a, I, I forgot that I said that, but I do agree with that. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, public's, public uh, polemics, public ideas can be refuted publicly, uh, provided that we um, do it keeping the humanity of the person we disagree with in view and that we don't just like, you know, seek to crush them or own them, that we really seek to understand them, but also resist. Um, I, I, you know, I'm a conservative Christian, uh, conservative theologically and politically, but I do think there are parts of our movement that um, can be unhealthy. You know, I think some of the dissent by a, a small fraction, but a, a sizable enough fraction into some of these really deep, dark conspiracy theories, you know, QAnon and some other things that prey on our fears, I think are really, you know, we really have to address this within our communities and really pull people back from some of these things. So. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've noticed something similar where, um, I became, so I grew up in a very observantly Jewish household, but I became a Christian about 20 years ago. When I first started going to church, it was, I started noticing it somewhere, uh, maybe a few years into it, about 2004, where there was a little bit of tension. If there was one car in the parking lot with a Carrie Edwards bumper sticker on it, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. But recently there are some circles, uh, whether it's a Bible study or um, some other functions uh, that there's more, there's more of a, uh, what do you call it? Permission structure for somebody who is still, you know, who, who is purporting a QAnon based conspiracy theory versus someone who may say, you know what, 
Obama wasn't that bad. I mean, you know, like, I don't think, you know, if, if I showed up to one of those and, and said, yeah, I don't know if the Democrats are like zombie, pedophile, child eating, you know, like I might get smacked around for saying something that controversial. So, yeah, I, we're, yeah. we might be on, onto something. Yeah, that, that's a great point. We, we tend to pull. We tend to have less tolerance for people who agree with us and disagree with us in terms of that's a great point. I mean, you know, I I am a strong conservative. I vote that way. But amazing how people were triggered when I just post and say, hey, I'm I'm, I'm listening to President Obama's biography and I'm really enjoying it. And it's like, uh, you know, you can't say that, (laughs) you know, and I think the same thing happened on the left, you know, when. If you said found anything redeeming in Trump or or liked a policy, it's like, oh, you're normalizing him and you're whatever. So I just think we're all kind of at a hair trigger at this point with some of this stuff in a way that's unhelpful. Yeah. Um, And I actually we should be able to find virtue in people we disagree with and say, I disagree on this, this and this, but I like this person on this and this. Or, you know, we, we, we act like we have to just consider people we disagree with as he's kind of like, you know, avatars of evil if you will i mean that that's that's true and i agree with that however at a certain point if someone enjoys humiliating other people if Mm -hmm. someone sprinkles their appeals politically with messages that are blatantly racist um if people live corrupt lives I don't care what their position is on Israel. I don't care if I agree with their economic policy or tax policy. At a certain point, I say, I really don't want to have anything to do with you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so it's a hard uh, equation to juggle. Um, Yes, I want to love the people I disagree with. I want to empathize with them and understand them. But at a certain point, I have to draw a line in the sand and say, I can't be associated with this. Um, that's, you know, and, it, and nothing else matters as much as the rest of the stuff. Well, let, let me put some meat on those bones. and I'll just be transparent about something I'm struggling with right now. And I, I, I know you're um, a little bit limited on time, but I, there, there's a big issue that I want to get to here. But right now, just so you know where I'm at politically, some of my favorite politicians uh, right now, Ben Sass. Anytime that dude some posts Love something Sass. online, yeah, I, I want to read what he has to say. I think he's consistent in his political views, and um, he he substantiates how he votes on any bit of legislation over the last four years, let alone um, you know his time, the, his whole time in the Congress. Um, but what he has to say now, it costs him something to say something some of the things that he's been saying lately. Um, some of my favorite writers are also conservatives, although they probably be labeled as rhinos nowadays, Kathleen Parker, Peggy Noonan, uh, mm-hmm. George Will, people like that, just so you know where I'm at. I really, uh, the, this project as a whole is about creating a space where folks who may disagree on any given policy or um, theological issue can have a edif- an edifying conversation where we might not necessarily persuade each other of an entire argument, but we'll at least be able to earnestly seek the truth together. Um, and maybe we will persuade each other. Um, you know, and, and I also want to find common cause with people that are way further left than me on any given issue, as well as people who are further right than me on any given issue. I want to see the humanity and the dignity in their humanity I am having a hard time just to be, again, just completely candid with folks who are still purporting massive election fraud and are up in arms about it and are somehow either excusing the attack on the Capitol or even rationalizing um, and trivializing it, trivializing it by diverting attention to some other issue that maybe um, Will Cow or, or Levin brought up today. You know, that, that's what I'm having a hard time with. I, I, I agree with you. And I, 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 I am right there with you that um, what happened on the Capitol was an assault on the government. It was domestic terrorism. Uh, it 
scares me that people take their conspiracy theories that far. And I also think, you know, once the election's over, you concede, you move on, you've lived to fight another day. And, you know, part of what we're seeing with this is, and I think this exists, this tendency, I'm not equating what happened on Wednesday with other things, but this tendency is we have absolutized our politics. We have, we have, um, as religious observance has declined, we've filled that religious fervor with political fervor and politics is a useful vehicle for human flourishing. I think politics is a, is important. You know, it's how we organize ourselves and and shape the society in which we live, but it, it, it's a useful vehicle, but it makes a poor God. Mm. And people have filled the hole in their heart with politics to the point where their whole life is about that. They're catechizing themselves every day with political podcasts and getting further and further into deep, conspiratorial things. They have made politicians their hero and savior. And that's idolatry. Yeah, it's idolatry. And they're setting themselves up for disappointment. Um, Politics is important, but we need to hold it loosely. We should have strong opinions and strong beliefs and we should try to use our voice and our vote, but we should hold that loosely. And as a Christian, it really kills me to see Christian symbols associated with that kind of thing because we ultimately believe that um, while America is a, is a great nation and we love our country and we want to see it flourish, our, our ultimate trust is in the kingdom of God. That when I read the book of Daniel, for instance, the whole book of Daniel is essentially saying these rulers rise and fall. These kingdoms rise and fall. God sets up and God takes down. But to have such a grip on politics so much that you're willing to um, storm the Capitol, that you're willing to see the other person who disagrees with you on policy as an enemy, someone to be vanquished is just really, uh, and my friend, Michael Ware, who has worked in the Obama administration, but is a, a strong, he's a, he's a, worked in the Obama administration. He's fairly conservative on a lot of issues, but he has written really persuasively when he talks about how, um, in some ways we've gotten too obsessed with politics in some ways we have, we were not serious enough about it. And, and we've, we've kind of made an idol, you know, we we've given it a primacy in our hearts that it just doesn't deserve. And I think that's what's motivating and fueling this. And it's really, I agree with you guys. I think it's really sad to see this um, happening. Hopefully, hopefully I'm, I'm an optimist. So you can take this for what it's worth, but I'm hoping that January 6th was a mirror to our collective souls. It's a mirror to our, the conservative movement. It's a mirror to say, Oh my goodness, this has gotten too far. Yeah. We need to like, how did we get this far? And I think a lot of people are a lot of people across the ideological spectrum are saying we, this got too far. I'm encouraged, even though I disagree with him on a virtually almost virtually a lot of his policies. I'm encouraged that the, you know, President Biden is uh, wanting to pull us back a little bit from some of the tensions of that and try to unify the country. So we'll see. I'm praying that he can. I'm praying for him that he that he that he can. I think he he wants to try at least. Yeah, yeah. Uh, me too. I'm I'm hoping that his long term relationship with Mitch McConnell mm-hmm. will bear fruit. Um, that he'll will. be more inclusive of uh, McConnell and reasonable Republicans. Uh, but you know. Um, I guess I guess we'll see. <laughs> I was thinking the other day, thou shalt have no other God before me unless we're told otherwise by CPAC. <laughs> you know, it's right. Yeah. Um, I have a I have a bone to pick with you. Uh, okay. I'm, I'm not sure if we have enough time to really dive too deep into it. No, my dad's shaking his head. I'm going to I'm going to present it and see where it goes. Okay. How about I present it? Well, let me let me give the preface and then I'll let you take it from there. OK, so in your book. The characters of Easter, you cite N.T. Wright, who happens to be one of my favorite living scholars, uh, at the top of the chapter on the Pharisees, scribes, and Sadducees. You start the chapter by saying, if there was a villain in the Gospels, an Easter antagonist, it has to be the religious group known as the Pharisees. Now, throughout the chapter, you share a more in-depth understanding of the historical Pharisees, understanding Mm -hmm. how uh, distinct this group was on so many levels from the Sadducees 
uh, even saying rightly, I think that Jesus may have been more aligned with the Pharisees and also acknowledge how some anti-Semitism is rooted in a certain mm-hmm. portrayal of them. My bone to pick is that um, I, I saw in a number of places, such as in a recent article, uh, resist the Pharisee temptation on social media. You seem to play into the pejorative shorthand that the Pharisees have become in Christian culture. Yeah, that, that's fair. Um, I, I think I'd like to think in that chapter that I, um, kind of flesh out actually what we think the Pharisees are and not what they were. And most of us, especially who are conservative Christians would be closer enough to them. You know, the Pharisees, I, I feel like were the common were the common folks in Israel versus the Sadducees and the, um, Herodians were a little bit more in the elite. And in fact, it was really the Sadducees and those who were more instrumental in, in Jesus arrest. Now the Pharisees were upset with Jesus obviously because he claimed to be Messiah and, uh, and all that. But I, I think in that, that article on the Pharisee temptation, I think I'm specifically playing off that one example in the temple in Luke 18, where you have a very pious Pharisee, who is really following all the um, proper, you know, ceremonial and everything laws kind of making an outward display of his piety versus the, the very despised tax, you know, uh, tax collector who everyone, you know, if, if there was Twitter back then, everybody would be dunking on the tax collectors. You know, everybody <laughs> would be saying, I'm so glad I'm not like this person. Um, so that's kind of what I was doing, but I'm open to, to criticism on that. Cause I think it is a complicated issue, right? My, my, the Pharisees were the good guys. Mm-hmm. They were the good guys uh, from a Jewish perspective. The, uh, when I read the gospels after Corey became a Christian, my eyes were open and I said, Oh my God, Jesus could have been a Pharisaic rabbi. That's probably what he was. Um, and all of these. I don't disagree with that. And, and, and all of these uh, 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 arguments he's having with scribes and, and, and others that Christians identify as Pharisees are very much like the in-house family arguments between Beit Kalel and Beit Shammai. Um, we don't have time to go into this in any great depth, but I think that any Christian leader who buys into uh, the stereotype of Pharisee that demonizes them is doing a terrible, terrible injustice to Jews because that was the foundational theological way of justifying vicious, murderous anti-Semitism. A, a little bit of personal historical context. My own grandmother, my father's mother, uh, was born in Russia. And every year after uh, around Easter time, around the Passion, when the presentation of the Passion plays, was always followed by pogroms. Was the most dangerous mm. time of year, be- specifically because of the presentation or the or the representation of of the Pharisees in those passion plays. The most painful experience. I've gone to Corey's church many, oh, many times. Yeah, I'm always welcome. I feel good about it. Um, it's a you know, it it could just as easily be synagogue as as, as church. The one time where. I had to control myself from standing up and screaming literally was every year at their passion play. Why? Um, it wasn't anti-Semitic, but the same characters who played the Sadducees played the Pharisees. Mm. And you walked out of that passion play saying these Jews really did kill Christ. Mm. It may have been a subliminal message and the people sitting there, if I confronted them on it would have, had all kinds of, oh, no, no, we love Jews. My grandmother was a Jew, I, you know, but as a religious Jew, I got to tell you, um, it brought, it, it's just a horrible experience. It's wrong. Yeah. And I'm with you on that. And I do think Christians have been sloppy uh, with this throughout church history. Unfortunately, uh, my family is Jewish. Uh, my mom is Jewish. She became a, a follower of Christ uh, at a young age, but her parents, my grandparents are 
So let's see here. They're first generation Americans. So my be my great grandparents, they escaped the pogroms in Russia and in in, in uh, Poland. Poland, probably. Yeah. So I'm very sensitive to that. Um, and I do hope that chapter actually helps explain the nuances that you talked about, Ronald, about between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, that the Pharisees were, for the most part, the good guys. They were not power hungry. In fact, they resisted Rome. Um, they tried to adhere to the to the um, nonviolent Testament law. They actually, and as N.T. Wright points, points out, they, they wanted a renewal, a spiritual renewal of Israel. And in fact, Jesus interactions with them were just about him claiming to be Messiah. And they obviously had a resistance to that because they had false messiahs come and go. And I actually think on the day of Pentecost, when you have thousands of people coming to Christ, you know, through the preaching of the Holy spirit, I think most of those are probably Pharisees converting, you know, whereas like throughout the, um, the rest of the Old Te- New Testament through the book of Acts where there's persecution of Christians, I think probably most of that is from the ruling Sadducee party. So anyways, uh, hopefully I put those nuances in there, but I'm sure I could have been even more careful. But that's a, I think that's a really important discussion. I do think Christians need to be more careful about that. And I sadly, I do think Christians have unfortunately uh, condoned anti-Semitism. You know, even some of our heroes that we like, like Martin Luther and others have been awful on, on that. And so, um, and I am distressed that every generation we have to fight anti-Semitism, you know, that, you know, this it's risen its ugly head again in on the right and the left, you know, you think of what's going on in New York, you know, and other places. And so I'm glad you brought that up. I think, I think you raise a good point with that. I know you got to go, but, um, two more questions. One is, um, do you have an upcoming book or project or ministry that you'd like to uh, share with everybody, anybody or our, our, our audience? Yes. Uh, you mentioned one. So um, the characters of Christmas was, uh, has been out for a couple of years and has have been really encouraged by the response to that. So the characters of Easter is going to be out for this Easter uh, it'll be released next month. So I'm pretty excited about that. I have a children's book coming out in May with a friend of mine uh, talking about human dignity and kind of seeing the image of God and various vulnerable people groups. Um, I have a book on racial reconciliation that I edited that's going to come out in May too with Scott featuring, you know, uh, pastors from a variety of um you know, uh, of kind of a diverse group of contributors there. So those are some of the things I'm working on. That's great. That's great. Always got projects in the hopper somewhere. So, <laughs> yeah, you're pretty prolific. So I, I, I appreciate that and respect that. And, um, we might not have time for it, but did you have any questions for us? I don't think I did. I've had a great time with this interview. I've loved it. And, uh, I love the back and forths. I love conversations like this. I think we need to have more of that. And it seems like you could do more on a podcast, with a longer conversation than just, um, you know, the kind of quick takes and hot takes online. So I have one, I have one question, a real yeah. quick one. What's that menorah doing on your bookshelf? Well, I got that in Israel. Oh. Uh, I've been to Israel four times and it's just a memento that I've got that I've put there. Uh, I've also got an Israeli flag. Let's see. I've got one somewhere. Yeah, That's awesome. You can see that. And I've got, a camel from Israel, the Bibles. Yes, I'm a, I've been to Israel four times. I really cannot wait to go back. I think it's mm. just amazing. Well, I can't wait to have you back on this podcast. I'd love to come back. We, it seems like we got a lot more to talk about. Well, thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate you coming in. Pops, thanks for, uh, thanks for being your, your normal tzitzkamacha self, which is a troublemaker. In a, <laughs> <laughs> In all the best ways, as John Lewis says, good trouble, right? Good trouble. Good trouble. Yeah. All right, gentlemen. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Be safe out there. Take care. Wonderful meeting you. All right. You take care. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you've heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and leave a review. 
That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam. Tikkun Olam.